up, everybody? It's Tyler. I'm Danny. And we're here for another episode of Fried Squirms. I'm feeling a bit like a maniac today. <laughs> Actually, I'm a bit of a sleepy bitch right now. I don't know what the fuck it is. I was wide awake earlier, but... I think it's equal parts. Probably the weather. It's a little overcast day, a little windy, a little blasé. Right. All I've been doing is sitting around fucking reading comic books all day. That doesn't exactly make you want to get up and do something. <laughs> Makes you want to sit around and read more comic books. So. <laughs> no, that's understandable, man. Now, my, my weekend's been pretty laid back for the most part. I think I told you before we recorded, I got done editing a little earlier this week, so it gave me a little bit more time to do some research for this film. So I came loaded today. Fuck yeah. Well, before we get into the film... We should probably take our green hits. I'm not quite stoned enough right now. And Phew, I am not stoned at all. So, <laughs> I know I've brought up Super Silver Haze before because it's one of the parent strains of Montana Silver Tip. Don't remember if I've just talked about it before on its own, but that's what I have loaded up today. Nice. Actually won the High Times Cannabis Cup in 97, 98, and 99. Damn. Bred from Skunk, Northern Lights, and like Old School Haze. There you go. Those are all good strains. Right? It's pretty much a pure sativa. Pretty fucking close, as much as anything is these days. So, going to be more up in the energetic shit. That's good. It's more of a happy rather than an energetic, but it's still more on that side rather than put my sleepy ass out. So <laughs> I hear you there. Pretty much what I brought today as far as what's in my vape is something I brought last week. So, it's the Durban Poison. Mm. And in the joints that I brought over for the both of us, it is something I brought over before, and that is the Cocoa Puffs. So, oh, cool. Yeah, so so both of these are sativa strains. They're both going to get us a little bit chirpy. I don't know about energy-wise, but I know it, it's not going to put us to sleep. Let's put it that way. Right, right. In just like a couple weeks, three weeks out from oh. where we're at now, we won't have to deal with this, oh, I think I've brought this before bullshit, yeah. because good news Montana's untethering. Wow. That's huge news for us. So both being medical marijuana patients, we'll be able to go grab our medicine <laughs> at any dispensary. Hell yeah. I need my scripts. Rather than the one that we're currently tethered to. Right. Which, like, nothing against yeah, Greenhouse. Likewise. Like, I, I love them to death. I'll probably still go to them quite often. But, like, if I just need to re-up... There's, like, two dispensaries within, like, four blocks of me right yeah, now. Yeah, like, so it's a lot more convenient as well. So we'll be able to bounce around town, check out a bunch of different flavors and strains and terpenes and all the different highs. Yeah, we'll definitely get what to see what Missoula has to offer across the boards. What do you have? Well, it's a state for that matter, too. Can you imagine road trips? Oh, no shit, right? Yeah, so there's that as well. It's going to get a lot more exciting coming up, but right now... If I mentioned Super Silver Haze before, well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be fucking smoking it. No, again, it's so. a great strain. I can't blame you. I'm going to hit that shit now. Nice. <laughs> Whew. Yeah, there we go. Well, now that we're starting to fucking hit some weed, let's uh, get into the guts and bolts of 1980s Maniac. No Elijah Wood here. Guts and bolts. All right. Guts and bolts, Danny. Maniac. 1980. God damn it, I almost always forget. I have to start with some sort of spoiler-free synopsis, right? Oh, yeah. All right, we get... I mean, I guess technically it takes place over a course of definitely a little bit more than a day, maybe a couple. Yeah. But it's basically the day in the life of a serial killer. A maniac <laughs> who's on a little bit of a spree. Yes, he is. 
And I mean, that's kind of the movie, right? Like, yeah, as far as spoiler free goes, <laughs> yeah, because any anything else, man, it's really going to start giving shit away. Yeah, yeah, anything beyond that, it it gives shit away, and especially because anything beyond that, you're getting into the last like twenty minutes of the movie anyway, because that is most of the movie is you're just watching a serial killer do his thing. So exactly. So yeah, that's you know a nice brief synopsis of what this film entails. Of course, week to week, we like to talk about our cast and crew. And this week, I'm going to lead off with our director, and he's also one of the producers on this. And this gentleman is William Lustig, and some of his film credits include the series Maniac Cops 1 through 3. He also directed such films as Vigilante, the film Hit List, the film Relentless. He's also known for the films The Expert and Uncle Sam, and he's also responsible for the short documentary Conducting Dario Argento's Opera, which I thought was really sweet. Yeah. Along with that, we have writers C.A. Rosenberg. This is her only film credit. We also have Joe Spinell, who is actually our lead actor in this film. He's also known for helping write the short for Maniac 2, Mr. Robbie. We have cinematographer Robert Lindsay. He's known for being the DP on such films as The Violation of Claudia in the film Hot Honey. We have editor Lorenzo Marinelli. He's also known for editing the films Vigilante, the film The Undertaker, and New York Cop. We have music composed by Jay Chataway. This is actually his first composition for film. Oh, yeah, okay. it's really cool. And some of his other credits include such things as uh, Vigilante, The Big Score, Walking the Edge, The Rosebud Beach Hotel, Missing in mm-hmm. Action, Invasion USA, the film Silver Bullet, which is one of my favorite oh, childhood films. Yeah, He's also composed the music for Braddock, Missing in Action Part 3. Maniac Cop 1 and 2, the film Relentless, The Ambulance, Rich Girl, and Delta Force 1, The Last Patrol back in 2000. Okay, so we have special effects done by Tom Savini, a name that we're very familiar for obvious reasons. And gentleman Rob Button, he's known for the makeup effects on this film. This was produced by Andrew Garoni and William Lustig. The production company was Magnum Motion Pictures Incorporated. The distributor for this film was Analysis Film Release Incorporation for the 1980 United States theatrical release. It also had a release date on May 10th, 1980 in France at the Cannes Film Festival. It also had its premiere January 30th, 1981 in New York City, New York. The budget was an estimated $350,000. It grossed right around $10 million. There are a couple of different taglines for them. One that I see all the time because it is a part of the poster, but it is, I warned you not to go out tonight. And another one I like too, I guess the the short phrase, it's basically, it says, you can lock your doors and your windows, but you can't lock the maniac inside your mind. Well, okay. This might be a mild spoiler, but I was kind of hoping for, mother, (laughs) mommy. (laughs) Which those would have been fitting as well. Or read anew. Read that anew. too. <laughs> That's good. I like that too. Both of those would actually be terrible taglines, but they'd only make sense if you already knew. Right, but they do fit, considering. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so our cast, I'm going to lead off with Joe Spinell. He plays the role of Frank Zito. And Mr. Spinell, really cool character actor. He got his real big break as Will C.C. in the film The Godfather. He also reprised that role in The Godfather Part Two. 
he went on to do such films as The Seven Ups, which actually William Lustig was a production assistant on that film, so that's how they formed the relationship there. He's also done such films as Taxi Driver. You might have seen him in the film Rocky, part one and part two. He was also in the film Sorcerer. You might have seen him in the film Star Crash, which actually has another actress that we're about to mention here in a moment in it. He was also in the films Cruising, The Ninth Configuration, Forbidden Zone, which, believe it or not, that is where the Knights of Oingo Boingo form mm. that Danny Elfman okay. was a part of. Yeah, in the Forbidden Zone, so a little factoid there. He was also in the films Nighthawks. You might have seen him in the last horror film. He was in the film Vigilante. He was also in the film Maniac 2, which I mentioned earlier is a short film. He was also in such things as Married to the Mob, The Undertaker, and Rapid Fire. And he's done some bit parts here and there in television. Unfortunately, he passed away in 1989, which I'll mention a little bit later on in our next section. Yeah, I knew that he had passed and weirdly and suddenly, but I never knew the details and read up on it. And I was like, oh, that fucking sucks. Yeah, very unfortunate. So, like I said, that's something I'll bring up a little bit later on. All right, moving along, we have Caroline Monroe. She plays the role of Anna D'Antoni in this film. Now, some people might recognize her because she was in quite a few Roger Moore Bond films, starting with Casino Royale, where she played a guard girl, which where she went uncredited in that. She was also in such films as The Abominable Dr. Phoebes. She was also in Dracula AD 1972, Dr. Phoebes Rise Again. Some people might know her for some of the... Uh, oh, uh, Harryhausen? Yeah, Harryhausen. I don't know why I couldn't say that. The films The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. She was also in Captain Cronos, Vampire Hunter. Now, keep in mind, too... If I'm not mistaken, she was the only actress to sign for Hammer Horror Studios. Oh, shit. Yeah, okay. so she was a big-time name. She and Ingrid Pitt were kind of like the two British bombshells in horror back in that time period. And we talked about Ingrid Pitt because of The Wicker Man. All right, now, some of the other films that she was in include At the Earth's Core. She was in The Spy Who Loved Me. I mentioned Star Crash. She was also in the last horror film. Don't Open Till Christmas. She was also in the film Slaughter High, To Die For, Flesh of the Beast, and numerous other films. Kind of little spot stuff here and there, mm -hmm. but nothing quite as well known as her time period from, I'd say, the late 60s all the way up through about the mid to late 80s, roughly. All right, moving ahead, we have Gail Lawrence. She plays the role of Rita. Now, some of her other titles include So Fine and Bye Bye Monkey. We have Kelly Piper. She plays a role of the nurse in this film. The blonde nurse, that is, because there are two nurses. But some of her film credits include Vice Squad. She was in Reckless and in Love and the film Rawhead Rex. All right, we have Rita Montone. She plays a role of the hooker, the brunette hooker in this film. Mm. And she's been in such things as Blood Sucking Freaks, the film The Children, and the film Street Hunter. All right, we now, probably need to cover Blood Sucking Freaks. At some point, yeah. <laughs> be a lot of fun. Now, once again, Tom Savini, because he did special effects, he also played the role of Disco Boy in this film. And we've talked about him several times before. Dawn of the Dead was probably the biggest one that we mm -hmm. talked about him, but... If you look through his film credits, I mean, he worked with George Romero a lot, like with the film Martin, Knight Rider, stuff like that. He was also in Creep Show, Part 1 and 2, Two Evil Eyes. So we'd spend all day here talking about Tom Zavini. He's basically the American's godfather of gore and special effects for the most part. Yeah. I mean, aside from like Herschel Gordon Lewis and stuff like that, but as far as practical effects, this is your guy. All right, moving forward, we have... 
Hyla Mero, she plays the role of Disco Girl. Now, she's been in such films as The Death Collector. She was also in the films Vigilante and the film Hostage. Now, I did read up a little bit about her. She was a stunt actress in a lot of films. Oh. And because she resembled Mia Farrow, like in posture and physique, she wound up being her double in a lot of Woody Allen films. So I was like, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. All right, we have James Brewster. He plays the role of Beach Boy in this film. Now, he went on to star in such films as Vigilante. He was in The Deadly Spawn and The Phoenix Extent. All right, we have Sharon Mitchell, which her real name is Abigail Clayton, but she plays the role of Nurse Number 2. She was in such films as Night of the Juggler and Class of Newcomb High Part 2. And if you're an aficionado... You might recognize her because she was one of the biggest porn actresses during the golden era of porn back in the 70s, all the way up through, I think it was like the later part of the 80s, and she got back into it during the 90s. But now, I read that she actually went back to school, she got her doctorate, and she helps the actors and actresses in terms of like raising awareness for HIV, preventative mm. stuff, you know, disease. Mm -hmm. So she helps uh, get them screened, basically. Oh, cool. Yeah, just to make sure everybody's safe in the business. And last but not least, I do have Randy Jurgensen. He plays the role of the first cop towards the end of the film that breaks into the home. But he was in such films as The French Connection. He was in the film The Godfather. He was also part of the film The Seven Ups. He was also in the film God Told Me To, which is actually pretty neat. He was also in the film Sorcerer. He was in the film Superman as Officer Number 3. He was also in Cruising, Vigilante, the film The Juror, Thinner, Donnie Brasco. So something I'll mention about him a little bit later on is because at one time before he actually got into acting, he was a New York Police Department detective for decades. So... With that, he had a little pull for some of these shots in this film. Mm. Yeah, so, like I said, this is our cast and our crew. You gave us a brief synopsis. We should give you some warnings heading into this film. Oh, let's see. So, although not technically one of the video nasties, this movie was out about the same time, and famously, when things were seized in raids, this was generally seized alongside because of the amount of violence... And there's some gore. Yeah, there's some good gore in this, actually. And just its overall, like, meanness and unsettlingness to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, if you've never watched this before, but you're a longtime listener, it's very comparable to something like a Henry Portrait of Serial Killer. Absolutely. So. It's very raw, very visceral. Yeah, very raw. It's about a serial killer hunting women, so yeah. that's what you're going to get is a lot of violence towards women, basically, in this. Exactly. So if you're, you know, not inclined to watch these types of film, this one's definitely going to tune you out. If you didn't like Martyrs because of its violence oh towards gosh. women. Yeah. <laughs> In a lot of ways, you probably owe this film a lot of credit for that. Right. <laughs> it's pretty easy to explain. It's about a serial killer hunting women. So yeah, that's the I mean, kind of violence you're going to get. It's a character study, get. yeah. That's the kind of gore you're going to get. And it's not... Tom Savini's the kind of gore you're going to get. I guess that's how I should explain Right, 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 right. I mean, there's there's some brutal moments, but yeah, for the most part, if you can handle some Savini practical effects, then you're right at home with this film. Right. But it's also 1980, so... Yeah. keep that in mind as well. Keep that in mind. Well, let's just get into it so we can talk more about Maniac. How does that make you squeal? I'm a maniac, <laughs> maniac on the floor. Hell yeah. Dancing like we've never danced before. 
I think we've danced before like this. Like oh, I said, yeah. when, when I said that this evokes feelings of Henry, this really evokes feelings of Henry. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of the best way I could describe it to you without spoiling anything prior to you know reviewing this film, of course. Right, well, and that's a good place to start. You've seen this before, I haven't. So what's your history with this movie? Okay, so unbeknownst to me at the time, which a little bit of trivia here, a little, it's not really spoiler, but a little bit of trivia, but another one of those in the early 2000s when I was collecting DVDs, you know, first getting into it, I would go to Best Buy, of course. And at the time, Blue Underground was putting a lot of these films out, right? A lot of Italian style films, a lot of, uh, you know, those early 80s films that really didn't get some great copies, like some rough copies here and there, nothing uncut. But anyway, I got a hold of this film, right? And I didn't know at the time, but William Lustig, our director, is actually the founder of Blue Underground. Oh, shit. So it makes okay. sense why he was putting all these fucking films out, yeah, no, including no this. So with that being said, I remember seeing this, like I said, back in the early 2000s. Granted, I didn't watch it a lot, but it is one that kind of sticks with you because of its grimy, like that 80s old New York feel, you know, before New yeah. York got cleaned up. So it felt a little dirty, you know? So I remember that, watching it with a few friends. And yeah, it's been one I've been sitting on a while, and every now and then... It is one I like to pop in, and uh, last year I introduced this one to Jeff, uh, who's I'm, been on the show as well. Oh, sweet. I, I do have to say that was one of my early like thoughts in the movie. I'm like, oh yeah, this is that old New York that doesn't really exist anymore. Or no, at least it doesn't. It, Only or at least own. it doesn't in the same site, like same places. No, absolutely not, man. I worked in New York, Manhattan, that is, back in the... So it happened to be early 2000, mm-hmm. so I can, I can vouch and say that... The 42nd Street Times Square that you see in this film is not the same Times Square that you will visit now. Not even close. For a long time, whenever New York was brought up, I always thought of old New York because of movies and TV and shit. And now, when I think of New York, I don't think of old New York (laughs) anymore. It was weird noticing that shift in my own brain where I'm like, oh yeah, this is what it used to be. Instead of like, uh... oh no, this is just New York. No, it does. It reminds me of films like Chud and you know mm. things of that nature where you do get that old New York feel to it. So yeah, that's another reason why I appreciate this film. Sweet, yeah. I mean, I've probably seen clips from this, to be honest. This movie is brought up like all the time in different horror documentaries and shit, so I've known of this movie, and it's basically how it unfolds out for a long time. There wasn't anything new and surprising about this as I was going into this first and second viewings. But that being said, it's still knowing in words from synopses and shit is one thing and hearing people talk about it. Like it was super cool to finally actually watch it, especially because it did remind me so much of Henry and that's another great movie and fucking Spinell. God damn. Yeah. That's why I was excited too, because I think if you take this movie, right, and put it to the side, and you look at the rest of his filmography, he's basically a character actor, right? Yes. And he's recognizable, of course, because, you know... Next uh, biggest, I mean, would the next biggest thing for... Well, next biggest, like... Arguably, yeah, but... Would it, would it, either, it would either be The Godfather... Yeah, I'd or say that, or maybe Rocky. Because he was Tony Gazzo. Exactly. I mean, there's a couple films... But that's the thing. I don't think most people even remember what the first no. the plot of the first Rocky was. I don't think a lot of people remember that Rocky right, which is was funny because he was the muscle. The <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was basically the guy that the uh, the collector would send out to beat up and collect money. <laughs> which that was the, the part that Joe Spinell played, coincidentally enough. Yeah, yeah. He was the... 
and then eventually he was like, nah, you're you're a cool rock. Go focus on your fucking yeah, exactly. bout or whatever. But Yeah, but it's cool to know that he, because of his connections, he was in a lot of familiar films, mm-hmm. and it paid dividends. All right, so let's keep that in mind. We can put a little lamp on that because there's some really cool little side stories we can get into with all of that information. I realized his death was tragic to begin with, but like it makes it even more tragic. Like, oh shit, he could put out this work and we lost him. Yeah, and this actually was dumbass way. It was in the very, very beginning stages too of him getting some lead parts, and this Mm -hmm. being the first one. Mainly, it's because he took a chance. He took a risk with William Lustig and Andrew Garoni, the guys I was talking about earlier, the producers, our director as well. But at the time, those guys were like in their early twenties and. Both of them really didn't have any credit or, or creds, you know, to their resume. And from what I understand and what I gleaned is that Spinell was offered a five-deal contract with this producer to do five films, right, of course. And I looked at some of the films that were kind of in that that range and during that time period. And a couple of them, he would have been in some pretty big films with some really well-known names, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. But... He turned it down because he believed in these guys. I had mentioned earlier that because of the film The Seven Ups, that's how Lustig and Spinell knew each other. They formed a relationship, and he, Lustig said they used to go to 42nd Street to watch a lot of horror films. He said at that time, there was about a dozen or so theaters on that strip that played double headers and or double features at the time. And he said some of it too with like the art house films and horror at that time he said they don't they'd only stay in the theater for a couple of days and then they rotate other films in and out but because of their passion for film and specifically horror they would go see a lot of films together Mm -hmm. and long story short you know they had a film in mind this being the film and yeah so long story short spinel was like look i'm going to take a chance with these kids um i'm going to help write it i'm going to help produce it and i'm going to star in it because this will be my first starring you know, our, our first lead. Mm-hmm. And so he did. And the rest is history. So let's put it that way. So with that in mind too, right, Lustig said, that I had mentioned her name, Rosenberg, C.A. Rosenberg. Now, <laughs> her husband was actually the one who was given the script first to help write, but he was involved with some other stuff. And he's like, you know, why not give my, my wife a chance? She, she knows kind of like formulaic cop story kind of stuff. Okay. And so the original idea for this film, <laughs> believe it or not, was going to be a little bit more of a, a cop chasing a serial killer. And the oh. cop was going to be Jason Miller. Jason Miller being Father Damien and the Exorcist. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Now, check this out. Well, so, does the cop idea eventually get recycled to Maniac Cop? I don't know. A little know. bit? I, probably. A little it, bit? Or it, at yeah, least idea it, probably it wouldn't cop. surprise me. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. That's why it stuck in their head was they were already working on a cop? Yeah. And that would make sense why they would just take the, that information and carry it into a different film, right? They've already got the, the foundation for it. But with this film, like I said, Jason Miller would have been the cop chasing Spinell. And Daria Nicolodi, who was Dario Argento's wife at the time, right? We've mentioned her during Suspiria and Opera and some other films. She was supposed to play the role of Anna D'Antoni in this film. Oh, but okay. But because Argento was filming Inferno at the time in Italy, they couldn't get Daria. So, on a chance meeting they had, and this is Spinell and Savini, they both went to a Fangoria festival, mm-hmm. uh, convention, whatever, in New York, where Caroline Monroe was happened to be a, like a keynote speaker or a guest, you know. And they approached her 
on the basis of like, look, you know, we've got this film that we're shooting. Our lead we couldn't get because, you know, she's in Italy filming and we only need you for maybe like a week. You know, would you like to play the role of a, an Italian photographer? And she mm-hmm. was like, sure. So keep this in mind, too. They were only shooting at this time on a $48,000 budget. Right. Yeah. So that's important to know. Because they approached Caroline and she accepted her husband at the time, this uh, gentleman named Judd Hamilton, he wound up getting investors to, I think, invest. I've heard different numbers, somewhere between 75000 to about $125,000 to complete this project. And of course, Caroline playing opposite of Spinell as a, a female protagonist in this film. So... That's pretty much how all this shit came together, right? Okay. So once things started dropping out, like uh, initially Argento was going to be a producer on this film because Lustig had worked on Tenebron in uh, Inferno. Mm-hmm. Uh, as like a, I think as a part of the New York crew for some of the shots they had taken, specifically okay. some of the helicopter shots gotcha. they used in this film, yeah. oh, <laughs> which okay. is recycled from Inferno. Oh, fuck. Really? That's funny. Yeah. So when you know that, it's like, okay, it starts to make sense how they have these really cool connections. Long story short, too, Argento actually helped Lusta get some distribution rights in, in Europe because oh. of his connections in hmm. New York for Maniac. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So it was good to know Argento. <laughs> yeah. Even um, though I think sure. some of those places in Europe, it probably ended up getting banned. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Germany, I know for sure. United Kingdom, <laughs> some other places. But Italy's a little bit more lenient, you know? Yeah. Murder training, typically. So I think we probably should have mentioned this a little bit in our previous section. At its heart, Maniac is a slasher. Mm-hmm. It's not just like this day in the life of a serial killer. No, no, it's a that could kind of go a lot of different ways. And we talked about, especially back when we first did our initial run on slashers, how they kind of have a bum rap for being misogynistic. And we pointed out a lot of the ways why that isn't true. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that the reason people thought that was because of movies did exist like this one. Right. And I can understand where the character truly does hate females and you're just following him the entire time. (laughs) Right. It's uh, there's there's some things I'm going to I'm going to go to bat for this film for. But yeah, I mean, the the overall concept, the conception. Yeah, it is. It's a very violent film towards women. And it's, of course, inflicted by a male uh, antagonist. And of course, I don't think that that was its intent. No, but, but I think I that saying. movies like Maniac were probably the oh, reason yeah. why slashers had the reputation they did. Well, yeah, I mean, all the controversy too surrounding this film when it first mm-hmm. was released—you <laughs> cannot deny that. That being said, this being a slasher, it's also like riding the edge of being an art house film. It really is. I can't explain why it's not an art house film, but something about it does feel just a touch too mainstream, which is probably. Part of where um, all the controversy came from. No doubt. Because it felt mainstream enough that people treated it mainstream rather than treating it like grindhouse or arthouse flick. Yeah, and I think, too, knowing those box office numbers I mentioned a little earlier, where it made $10 million, I think that's what probably kept it from having that arthouse kind of slash cult following. Well, for whatever reason, it caught on and it blew up too big. Yeah, Yeah. So then it had eyes on it. Right. And it was. It was one of those films where we talked about when you get free press because of controversy, it's usually going to draw people more so than repel them from the uh, movie theater. Mm-hmm. So this is a perfect example of that. Before we get into like the more details of this movie, I know that it was in, at least partially inspired by 
Son of Sam. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that being even fresher in the public consciousness then would have maybe also helped the popularity of this? I think so, too. Now, in order for Spinell to get into character, he was studying a lot of serial killers from that time period, the 70s specifically. So you had your Ted Bundy's, and prior to that you had Ed Gein's, and Mm -hmm. you know, you'd mentioned Son of Sam, and John Wayne Gacy, and all these other guys, right? To where he could glean that information. And this is what Lustig said. He said that the common denominator amongst a lot of those serial killers is that most of them had mommy issues. So that's where Spinell incorporated a lot of that into his character in this film. Gave him a little bit more of a backstory. Made more sense. And, of course, they are also, too, were borrowing a little bit from Psycho, which laid right. the foundation, which you could say it's kind of a proto, which you I know you've mentioned before. So it's one I. of the proto-slashers. Right. Exactly. So you can see the influence and the direction, too, as far as the artistic merit, when you were talking about the art house, is Lustig said he grew up watching, because of those theaters, he said he grew up watching a lot of uh, the Italians at the time, Bava and Argento okay, yeah. and a lot of those guys, right? So he said when he watched AIP films specifically and some other distributors and you know production companies, he said they felt a little bit more like television more so than film. And I know we mentioned that a little bit, too, with some films Mm -hmm. from certain time periods. They feel more like a theatrical production more so than, you know, a a film per se. Mm -hmm. You know, it felt like something more made for the theater just because of the way it, it, for me, the way it looks aesthetically and the way it kind of plays itself out. Right. Whereas this, like I said, it kind of feels a little bit, in some parts, not wholly, but a little bit, it's a little giallo-ish, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Some of the set designs, the score, stuff like that. Speaking of which, he actually wanted Goblin to score this film. Oh, that would have been dope. Oh, yeah. But of course, they were working... against the guy that did it. No, no. But because Goblin were working on Inferno, you know, and Argento was off doing Inferno, Mm -hmm. and so was Nickelodeon at the time, they went with Jay Chataway, which I will say he did a fucking fantastic job for the first time scoring a film. It really gives... In my opinion, it gives this film a certain mood and a certain atmosphere, too. And a little bit of empathy. You can give a little bit of empathy for Spinell's character with his theme. Right. You know, it's, it's I don't know, it's a little bit uh, melodramatic, a little melancholic, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. But yeah, you're right. What could have been at Goblin score this? Oh, crazy. <laughs> Honestly, I think with a Goblin score underneath, this would be even more cemented in, like, legendary oh, status. No doubt. I mean, considering this is what we know This is legendary in its own way, right. but it's still a bit cult. Yes, like it's I agree. it's kind of on the, on the edge. Like, you have to know your shit a little bit to be like, oh, yeah, and Maniac. Yep, exactly. Yeah, this is not just one of those that would follow along the lines of, like, A Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th kind of series, Hellraiser, etc. Mm-hmm. People know it, but probably not as much as they, they should. Right. It's never going to die. No, it's not. It's it's classic enough. It's important enough. It's been talked about enough that it'll be immortal. But but yeah, I mean, as far as its acceptance, you could say it really didn't get a lot of acceptance until after the turn of uh, the millennium, actually, in the 2000s, like I said, when it was coming back on, on DVD and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it was kind of reinvigorating and also introducing new fans like myself for that time period to this film. And, you know, if you're already a fan of certain films prior, 
this one fits right in that mold because this is one that's a foundational film for a lot of future films. Right. So I guess let's get into it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Talk about some of what happens in this movie. I started laughing right at the opening <laughs> when he's when you get the hard breathing with him looking through the fucking tower beach viewer. binox. Yeah. <laughs> Which I kind of like. Man, that feels so old school, too. Yeah. When you see not only the way that that scene is shot, but hey, just Tommy, the vacancy. How's the peeping? Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Here's something cool. That opening scene was actually an homage to Jaws. Oh, okay. In part because of the way Jaws opens, it's more of a perspective or a POV from the killer. In this case, Zito, you know, in contrast, the shark in Jaws. Oh, yeah, because the first shots are from the water. Right. On the beach with the couple, right? And so the concept was like, you know, what if you could have a shark, you know, in the form of this guy, Zito, on land as opposed to being on water? So mm-hmm. you have a killer stalking people. And that's what you get. The opening is there's a couple on the beach. The fire's kind of dying down. Zito's off in the distance stalking them. The boyfriend goes gets firewood because the girlfriend's kind of like, hey, babe, you know, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, once the guy goes off, uh, Zito... Goes over, rubs her back, and she's like, "Ah, oh, thanks, babe. <laughs> oh, no. Slits her throat, and it's like, oh, shit. So that was the thing. So the slit the throat, I was like, okay, so this is how it's going to be. But it didn't look bad. It just didn't look great. And yeah. so, especially this being my first time through, I was like, so that's the throat slit we're getting. Why'd this movie have so much controversy? I mean, I get it now, but... <laughs> <laughs> right, but I mean, as far as initial impression, yeah, I was like, like eh, yeah, eh, not that's much. Fine. Now the boyfriend, I think, gets a little bit more rough, mm-hmm. even though you don't see maybe as as much gore and blood and stuff, but just, just the violence, violent. yeah, more violent, yeah, because he gets him from behind. He sneaks up behind him, gets him with the wire, and basically strangles him to death, mm-hmm. choking him out. But then, then it's just a nightmare. It is a nightmare. So it looks like he might have been recalling a previous murder, maybe from like the night before or whenever. Well, I think one of the news reports we hear confirms or like a headline we see. I can't remember if it's the newspaper or, if it, or it's the news on the TV, but something confirms that the couple was killed on the beach. Right. You're absolutely right. And during him waking from you know his sleep and all that stuff screaming from his nightmare what i really like about this particular scene is the shadows around his eyes in frame when you see him kind of getting up like i said it's you get the eyes and i've always liked that i've always liked shots where in this case it's not too artistic but it's just enough to where it's like that's i kind of like that but what we learn is that he has... He's crazy wackadoo. He, yeah, oh yeah, big time. Because <laughs> all around that apartment that he has are like dolls and mannequins and a shrine to his mother that's lit by candles. Dude, so he's venerating I, her. I love the set design of his room. Guess who did that? I mean, Savini? Spinell. Spinell, shit. Damn. That set design for me is up there with like the house from House of a Thousand Corpses Dude, and yeah. shit like that. No, granted, I mean, they did have, you know, some people help with setting, you know, the design for certain scenes and stuff like that. But he brought a lot of that shit to his character. So a lot of that has to do with him. It doesn't give you specifics what his game is, but you're like, oh, shit. Okay. Oh, you already know this dude's got some problems. Like, he might have just killed the dude as well in that nightmare, but that's mostly because he had to get away and he's a killer is what it seems like. (laughs) You're like, oh, shit, this dude kills chicks. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. And the whole dolls, he's definitely not seeing them as people necessarily. Some of the stuff we get too early on. And I think in the in that sequence is you, he opens up or at his least not shirt. as themselves because I guess later on once you realize where the hair is coming from. Right, 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 right. But what I was going to get at is we see scars on his chest. So we know at some point he's been abused and you know, he's hearing fucking voices in his head and shit like that, so I like how they pieced out his story through the movie. Because like you said, this early on, you just get his scars. Yeah, you don't you know exactly a little bit of his are. rambling, but his rambling isn't specific yet. Mm-hmm. His rambling gets a lot more specific later oh, on. Oh, I know. I like um, it. But that's the thing. They gradually unfold. You learn more and more about him. I feel like maybe that's also where some of the controversy was in the 80s, is that it's a character study of such a sick man, and that's not comfortable. No, it's and not. it can be very easily seen as glamorizing. Right. Now, to this film's credit, once again... To me, this doesn't come off as glamorizing. No, it doesn't. I could see somebody making that argument pretty convincingly, though. Well, yeah, because it is plausible. Mm-hmm. I, I would totally grant them that argument. Now, where I would say what differentiates this film from some of its earlier films, some of the predecessors was that this was told from the perspective of the killer, as opposed to it could have been a final girl or a cop chase. You know, it's always from certain perspectives. You Mm -hmm. know, in this case, it's totally him throughout. Well, this is, I mean, this is a slasher where you're just following the killer the entire time. Right. There's no jump scares. There's no who's coming out of the shadows. Most other movies, what you're watching right now would be happening in the background. If this was... Fuck, I mean, like, I know what you did last summer. Yeah. Like we did last week. You know what I mean? Like Precisely. This is what's happening to the killer in the background. Yeah. Could you imagine we're off topic In some weird way, this is almost like the original, like, Rob Zombie Halloween. Yeah. Good point. I was going to say, could you imagine what I know what you did last summer would have been told from the perspective of the killer? (laughs) That's essentially what you get in this film. But without all that, you know, I know what you did last summer shit. Right. Right. This would probably be a little bit more up like like Scream or something. Yeah. You know what I'm getting. It's it's oh, a classic absolutely. slasher, though, from the other side, but that's all we're watching. Yes. Which is It's weird dark and weird, yeah. And slow. And I will admit that at a certain point in this movie, it was kind of like, all right, what are we actually going to get to? Because he's just continually killing people. Yeah. What is the end game, essentially? Well, yeah, what's the end game? And you do start gradually building to one. I wouldn't have been able to quite guess where it actually went but <laughs> yeah anyway we're not quite there yet okay but i do so, want to point even from the beginning though i was kind of just like okay beach kill yeah What's beach next? kill you know we already know a little bit just like they're giving us the tiny dolls, doses the dolls ratcheted it up i was like okay yeah. his room's fucking he's got cuckoo. a shrine and shit yeah you, we don't know exactly what the fuck that's all about it yet right and i'm like okay so he's clearly bananas where we're we gonna get to next mm-hmm. but then the hooker was also kind of straightforward yeah i mean it really was now here's something i learned about this whole scene in this film is they shot this at hotel st james which is around midtown in new mm-hmm. york Right around Times Square. Now, I've seen in the trivia, if you read this on the database, whoever submitted it, they got their facts a little bit wrong. So they said at the same time that this film was shot and, you know, Frank goes up to the hotel room with the prostitute, the hooker. They said that this was the same hotel that a homicide of hookers was happening at. 
that part's wrong. It was happening a little bit to the west. So okay. where this was, I think around 47th Street, this is a little bit west of that. But that place, actually I read about, it's called the Travel In Motor Hotel. And those murders happened in 1979, around the time that this film was being filmed. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, so that also contributed to a little bit of the controversy at the time of this film. Like right. I said, where you can make the argument where it was glorifying a serial, an actual serial killer in Europe because that crime was never solved. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, so technically that event was happening at the time, but this is not the hotel that it happened at. Right. Right. It was a little bit west of there. <laughs> All right, now here's something else that's cool, I guess, if you want to call it, that the director, Lustig, does make a cameo in this scene. He is the, I guess, the front-end manager or whatever, the clerk, the hotel clerk. I was half expecting Spinell to pop off in some way when dude kept adding on to the fucking room price. Right, and the TV, <clears throat> and <laughs> are you going to have continental breakfast? <laughs> the TV was the one where I was like, oh, he's just adding on shit. Yeah. And I'm like, I hope the TV at least means that he's getting anal. I know, right? She <laughs> would hope something, right? All right. The whole scene, the way it plays out with Spinell or Zito, I'm going to say Zito, which is his character. Zito in the hooker at this time is she doesn't know exactly what he wants. He's still in his clothes. So Wait, it's still first, kind of innocent. Back when the hookers are on the street. Oh, yeah, yeah. Their conversation. What do, you, what do you think the other guy's ultimate was? Uh, yeah, because they're discussing. Because she's just like, I, the last guy I was with wanted to do an ultimate. I couldn't believe what his was. I thought I'd done everything. But she never says anything other than those stupid, like, generalized statements. I know. Well, if you leave it to your imagination, the sky's the limit. But <laughs> does it beg the question, were there animals involved? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, she says something that doesn't happen often, if at all. <laughs> you know, something she's never done before. I don't know. Maybe. I'm trying to think of something where she well, both I, wouldn't have encountered it before, but where she comes back laughing about it rather than being like, oh, shit, that was fucked up. This is like, going to sound so fucked up. You know I'm what not, I mean? I might not say it, but I think you might know what I'm going to say or what it means. <laughs> think of the time period, right? It's a sheenus. 1980s. I was going to say a CP, a creamy. Oh, okay. She got a pie. See, I now, laughed about I, it. I, I think she did coke off of some dude's dick. I guess it, <laughs> we yeah. call that a sheenus. I, that's funny. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, she might have took a shit on somebody's chest. Yeah, who knows? She could pee on somebody. That was one of my. I kept hoping she was going to say at least one more thing to sort of be like, did she just like Cleveland steamer on some dude's yeah, chest? Yeah. Who knows? I mean, people. But she are, just leaves it super vague. Yeah, exactly. Different strokes, different folds, right? That's how the hooker picks up Frank. She's like, oh, she needs money, right, to make mm -hmm. rent. So she needs one more John. He happens to be on the scene. Hey, she never clarified what the ultimate was. No. And it seems like, like the idea bucks, is like it. you leave it up to him. So he got his ultimate. He paid for it. You it can go around the world, right, or you can get the ultimate. It sounds like a car wash at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he takes up the offer, right? And we, mm -hmm. we talked about, you know... When they're getting the room, the fucking guy keeps adding on. It's like, hey, do you want this? This is an extra blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But once they finally do go to the room, that's where I was getting at. It's where he's still in his clothes. He never gets down, and it's even to his underwear or anything like that. She's putting on, like, you know, a little sexy dance and is shit. Is he a never nude? Possibly. 
I wonder if that's where David Cross got his idea for <laughs> Tobias. <laughs> Maybe, right? Right. I know David Cross is some weird shit. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. I'm going to have to ask him sometime. <laughs> but uh, David Cross, we know you're listening. <laughs> I couldn't help but chuckle a few times where she kept telling him, she's like, ooh, you're good. You're good. And he was just being sensual with her. Mm-hmm. But then that's when he snaps. The snap part, something about him choking her out. Obviously, it didn't have a plastic sack involved, but I was still kind of just like, this feels atrocy. A little bit. It does. You're right. That's good I'm point. like, I wonder if Ort- is Ortega a uh, fan? I could see that, dude. Even just subconsciously, it was like, I'm going to kind of do my maniac moment. I like that. But then he, of course, takes it a lot farther. Oh, yeah. He pushes the envelope. <laughs> Whereas this, in comparison at the time, this granted... this felt a lot like that. That is a very solid point. I like that. I think you're probably right. Made me wonder. Made me wonder. I like it. Well, there's two questions we've got for two different people. I like it. Lex Ortega, we know you listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. If only. But what we do get is a little bit is just a real quick cut of a different woman in that scene. And then it goes back to the prostitute mm. when he's strangling. So there's something going on there, a disconnect. It's a real quick flash. But what it amounts to, he suffocates her. Then he has to collect a prize item. And this is one of his motifs in this film, his M.O. He gets a scalp. He likes scalping. As soon as he started to scalp her, that's when I was like, oh. Because I remembered seeing some hair on some of the dolls. And I was like, oh, gotcha. Yeah. Like, they're stand-ins for mom. Yeah. And not only that. It's not just the cut, right, and the blood. It's the actual pulling back of the scalp. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing, you know, all of that, which is practical effects-wise, look pretty decent. Not pretty gonna good. lie. Yeah. yeah, pretty good. Not the best we're going to get, but keep in mind, time period, still kind of a little bit early on Savini, honing his craft. He gets a new doll, and he gets his trophy back to his place, and mm-hmm. we get just another one of his bits where he's going psycho-cuckoo crazy. <laughs> yep. And another He's part prepping. where I started laughing pretty fucking hard when he dropped into that fucking southern drawl. The terrible southern drawl. <laughs> He's just experimenting, right? Mm-hmm. Experimenting with shit. That whole scene, you're right, is... I know he's getting ready for his next night out, you know, as he's doing all that. He's eating, like, Cracker Jacks, and it's falling from him. Mm-hmm. But he's disassembling what's going to be his shotgun into that violin case. That was dope. Yeah, doing all that shit. That was dope. And I was like, uh-oh, what's, what we got here? I mean, I've already seen this film, but mm-hmm. for our <laughs> review's sake, it's like, oh, okay, what, what are we going to get ourselves into? And this is where I talked about the recycled Inferno scenes from the New York you know, mm-hmm. side, is we get a little bit of the overhead of New York, like those helicopter oh, shots, which I liked. Right. I thought that was kind of cool. So you're getting a little bit of voiceover, too, with looks like news reports and shit like that. So... Because we know that he's about to head back out, right? On his way back out, he does one thing first. And I thought this was weirdly fucked up and prescient, considering <laughs> this what this movie's about. Before he heads out, he has that little doll in the cage, and he's like, Polly want a cracker? Oh, good point, yeah. This is, what, like seven, eight years before Polly? I wanted wow. to pull it up. The Nirvana song, Polly. Oh, damn. You know, the Polly wanna cracker. I yeah. think I should get off her. Is about a serial killer who has a girl trapped. Jesus, I never thought of that. And she ends up getting away. Yeah. That was inspired by a real life incident where a serial rapist 
I don't think he got enough victims to be a serial killer, but I think he might have killed at least one person. I'm not positive. Gotcha. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. June 1987, Gerald Friend was his name, abducted a 14-year-old girl on her way home from a rock concert. She managed to get away, and that's how he got captured and shit. Huh. Uh, she didn't get away the same way as the song, but that was the inspiration for the song. That was seven years after this. But you yeah. have a serial killer with a fucking... Man, little doll in a cage. The yeah, that's a solid, solid point, dude. Yeah, I mean, it could be a weird fucking inspiration, but I mean, we know that's not this film's intention. But you know, but you never know. When as soon as he did that, I was like, yeah. "Wait, when did that happen?" And then I found out it was seven years later, and I'm like, "That's really fucked up." It really is. I didn't. I had no idea. That's fucking. I like that. Right. Oh <laughs> yeah, that shows you. <laughs> fucking hell. Damn. It's pretty deep. What we get after that helicopter shot is Zito is stalking Disco Boy and Girl, who's Savini and Mero. How the fuck does Tom Savini's game even work? <sighs> I don't know. It worked, though. Because at first he's just coming up on her well, like, you waiting for your boyfriend? We didn't get to see him in the dance club. That's true. Right. So he probably has some really hot moves because she's a pretty decent looker. Yeah. Right. But you're right. She's like, I probably should be getting home soon. You know, my boyfriend's going to get mad. He's like, well, your boyfriend's not here. And we don't we don't hear about 30 seconds of what he says because it goes to Zito. Mm -hmm. But in that 30 seconds, he convinces her to get in his car with him and drive off to fucking make out point. Yeah. He gets there. And we do cut back in there with them because this is when it almost goes full on slasher movie for a little bit. And we don't get nearly as much from Zito's point of view. Good point. We get a little bit, not nearly as much, which I want to talk about a couple of other things there, too, because I think it's awesome. But he tries to make a move. She temporarily shoots him down. Mm -hmm. He just sits there and fucking pouts about it for a bit. And then suddenly it's on. He just kind of smiles. What the fuck kind of game? How? What I like is, uh, he said, you want to meet me somewhere? Yeah, the back like, seat. Where? Yeah, the back seat. Okay. Boom. You're in. You're in like Flynn. Well, we like get in the background. In. Yeah, like Savin. In the background, what I do like is when the score hits and the lights cut out in Zito's car and he's pulling into the park right underneath the uh, Verrazano Bridge going into Brooklyn. What I like about that, it's just the creepiness of it, right? He parks he gets out really quiet he's starting to put his sh his fucking shotgun together well i was thinking one of my favorite parts in this entire movie is when he's pulling off and you know his lights are off and shit and they got his darked out car in the real darkest part of the shadow and you can barely even see that it's there yeah. on the fucking Creep screen in. for like the first like two seconds then you start to see some of the headlights very briefly like flashing off the side panels and shit yeah. and you realize oh there's a moving vehicle there and then yeah. it gets close enough that you're seeing more detail and well, shit but this is another example of film that didn't rely on permits they were doing a lot of guerrilla shooting this was all done like an hour right a lot of this shit was done like, boom, on the fly, set up, get in, get out. That's amazing for this, this. Right. And now keep in mind, too, if I'm not mistaken, in this scene, they're using a little bit of fog to create that atmosphere. Now, I said I was going to credit them. So there's a podcast I listened to on YouTube. They're called The Cult Show. But they had William Lustig on recently. 
And he talked about this. This is something I didn't know listening to the DVD that I have, like in some of the interviews and shit. Mm -hmm. But he said they were using this oil-based fog. So keep in mind. Now, before the big bat scene that's going to happen in this sequence is when Zito finally does pull in. He's like perving out, right? He's looking at them and she gets spooked. And she's just like, you know, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. It's a really, really well done it's slasher tense. sequence. Right. It's, it's nothing you haven't seen right, before right. It's necessarily. Nothing new, but it actually reminded me a lot of Urban Legend. Oh. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, good point. But it was just exquisitely well done. I agree. So <laughs> as she's panicking, as Savini is, you know, fiddling with the car, he finally gets the headlights on, which I like. That's old school, too, the way those headlights pop open and shit. Oh, yeah. It's pretty cool. I like it with the and grill then, and all that. Zito. Zito. And it slows down. Dude, I was not fucking expecting this one bit. But this as soon as he did it, that's where I was like, son of Sam. Yeah. They pulled it. I mean, he might have been 44 and dude's about to just shoddy through the fucking window. But I was like, okay, like we're going full on slasher, right? He's about <laughs> to come up to the fucking window. Yeah, I want to yank Savini out. I want to hear your take on that. So when when it does play out, what was your initial impression? A response to Dude, that. Dude, I wish I wish I would have had a fucking camera on my face because it would have looked like Haley's during Test Your Fright. I was like, <laughs> what the fuck just happened? My face went, like, my mouth fucking dropped because I was like, whoa. Best special effects in the movie. <laughs> yeah, no One doubt. of the best head splattering scenes I've ever seen. He just jumps up on that fucking Just hood on the hood, yeah. And just shoddies Tom Savini in the face. And I also, like, legit was also really happy for Savini for a second, because at that second I knew that, like, oh, he did this, and he, I'm, I'm sure he was happy with this result. You know what I mean? Oh, so here's where the behind-the-scenes is really neat about this whole sequence. Now, I mentioned a lot of this shit, no permits, shooting not on the fly. So Savini, he's the one who actually pulls the trigger. Okay. Right? So it's him that you oh, get in the, over the shoulder. Right. The prop that he used was an old mold of him. That he used, uh, I can't remember if it was for, Dawn, I don't want to say it might have been Dawn of the Dead, right? I know at least one of the molds used on this set was from Dawn of the Dead, but... Yeah, and this is what Lustig said about that when I was listening to the, the Colt Show interview. He, he said, uh, at the time, Savini was wanting to get a nose job, and oh. so that mold, that cast of his face still had his old nose, so he was going to fucking get rid of it anyway. And I read that he stuffed it with, you know, a lot of blood and, like, leftover food and whatnot. And so they actually shot through that real window. Like, it wasn't oh. it wasn't a breakaway or anything like that. Right. Right? And it was live ammunition on top of it. And I already mentioned that the fog was oil-based that they were using for the effect. So Lustig said when Tom Savini jumped up on there and they got that shot, right? He did it all in one take. And it blew up. They got all that shit. <laughs> He said because the fog was oil-based, the top of the hood of the car was slick. And when the you know shotgun recoiled, he oh. slipped off the hood <laughs> and landed on his back. But they got the shot off. And because it was live ammunition, Lustig had somebody on set, on standby, to where they could give him the gun, the shotgun. And he said, you take that down to Staten Island. <laughs> right? So they were getting off of the borough. To go to Staten Island because you can't be doing that shit with live no. ammunition, like a shotgun going off underneath the bridge. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, so that's the true aspect of guerrilla shooting back then. Like, you can't do that. <laughs> but they did. And it's 
one of those scenes where I was really anticipating you seeing because I think you're right at the beginning, just that choke out and this, the neck slash is like, ah, eh, it's all right. And then it ratches up a little bit with the hooker. And then this is like, <laughs> what the, the hooker fuck? The more just violent, but it's Yeah, I mean, you, you're getting the scalp and it's not bad. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, okay, you're, you're kind of getting a direction. Mm-hmm. But this one just, no puns. It, it blows away that expectation at that point because it's violent, <laughs> super violent. That being said, I barely even remember like his chase after her. Oh, basically, she's just freaking out in the car, and he's taunting her or, or mocking her oh, with the shotgun. Oh, that's right. And, and then, then he finally puts the muzzle right to her, and boom, you see the flash, and that's that's that. right. Yeah, and then when he returns back to his apartment, he's basically speaking to the mannequin as if that's his mother, right? Because I think the you know the hair is all bloody and shit, and he's like, I know you've been out. You changed the color of your hair. Mm-hmm. He's like, but we'll wash it. And he's like, I told you not to go out. This would happen, and... So, in one regard, he talks down to his his mother through these mannequins, but then he reverts back to a childlike thing where he's being punished and all that stuff. That mean we'll we'll learn that, but there's kind of this dichotomous thing going on with him. Well, and once he's back at home, that's when we know for sure that like there's choppers out after him and shit. Oh yeah, there's a search now. They're putting out several detectives, and so they put a little bit of a timetable on this because you know that. They're at least searching for him at this point, Mm -hmm. but it still felt very Henry-ish in that he still just seems to be killing with impunity. Yeah, exactly. It's not putting any pressure on him. No, no, because they don't know exactly who they're looking for. And he's not consciously, he might subconsciously be speeding up, and that's why this is all just kind of a spree at the end, but he's not consciously, like, pressured by any of it either. No, he's just... Okay, this is happening. He's aware. He mm-hmm. knows. He hears the reports. He's seen the newspaper clippings and all that stuff. All right. So right after this, right after those murders, this is where we get the introduction to Caroline Monroe's character, Anna, because she's in the park taking photos. But prior to that, there's a little interesting information about the, it seems like two mothers in the park with their so, kids. Well, right before that, mm-hmm. when he handcuffs himself to oh, the yeah, doll point, yeah. and he's going to bed. Was that motion his mother, quote-unquote, rocking him to sleep because Mm. she can't really because it's a doll? Or was he humping the doll? (laughs) (laughs) Man, you know, considering what we know about, not maybe at this point, but, you know, as the film unfolds, what his mom's profession was and (laughs) what he was witnessing. It's both. (laughs) Yeah, you could argue that because you know he grew up around Why this, not both? <laughs> yeah, this wanton sexual stuff that's going on all around him. But he's being a voyeur about it. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, there's a physical thing <laughs> next to him that's representing his mother in some form or fashion. I could see that. Very Oedipus complex. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so we're at the park. Right. So the two kids that are in the swings, for those who are curious about nerdy shit. That's actually Joe Spinell's niece and nephew. Mm. And one of the ladies is his then wife at the time, Diane. So his real last name is Spagnolo, but they were like, oh, people are not going to know how to say that name. So Spinell is his stage right. name. Joseph Joey is his real name. So okay. he did keep that part. But anyway, that's who, so he's got his family included in this film mm-hmm. was what I'm getting at. So that's kind of neat. But the kids are sneaking off to ride their bikes, and the little girl almost runs into Joe, and he's telling her to be careful, or Zito. He's like, mm-hmm. be careful, little girl. But in the distance, not 
too far, but in the distance, Anna snaps the shot of that encounter, and he notices that, and then she kind of goes off, takes some other photos in the park. I know that Central Park I've been there. Maybe not that location, but I know, I know Central Park when I see it. That I, I feel like that scene seemed to suggest that he was about to kill the little girl. It would look that way, but I don't know Which that isn't really his mo. No, no, no. But it did make me curious because arguably the, the last like ten minutes of this movie happen the way they do because he finally just mentally snaps. Would he have snapped earlier had he actually killed the kid? Because we Ooh. in his loony wackadoo moments. If you're paying attention to his dialogue, he's kind of beats himself up over the fact that he's continuing to do this. He does. There is these weird conversations he has, whether he's telling it like using himself as a vessel for his mother, disciplining him, or like counter, you know, talking to his mother. So the, you have these weird exchanges that what he's going through. Yeah, if you're really paying attention to his dialogue especially once you know how everything plays out. Like, I, I really noticed it the second time around, for sure. He's arguably a lot more sympathetic of a character than you would normally think of in this yeah. case, which, once again, probably just added to the controversy. Right, because you're not supposed to sympathize with a killer. <laughs> right. And, I mean, once again, it's one of those things like, this isn't an excuse for any of this crazy shit he's doing. No, it's... As long as you're not willing to make it an excuse... Right, and I don't think this film was doing that. No. Once again, though, you can see somebody really easily making that case. That's what I'm getting at. Why. It's like, <laughs> there's arguments to be made throughout the course of this film for both sides, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can argue, like you were saying, is, yeah, there. I mean, I've already mentioned a little bit of the score because of the way it's it's kind of somber. It's But you know with the kid, the kid Zito's background, right? Mm -hmm. We know that he was abused and all this other crazy shit, but that still doesn't excuse the fact that he's a killer. No. No. The subway chase comes up pretty quick, right? Right. Oh, let me. <laughs> you're right. So, a little bit before that, let's see. Right, here. right, right. Yeah, where are we at? Like I said, when she's snapping those photos, what, oh, he, okay, do yeah. what he does, it's, this is the clever part, is he walks over after she walks away from her bag and he fake ties his shoe and he gets her information. That's right. Right. So, he's got the beat on her. But then right. that night, he's just like, I gotta fucking kill again, basically. Right. What I like about this little scene. There's a little bit of a montage sequence where Zito's out late at night looking at mannequins through the storefronts. Mm -hmm. Now, his assistant, one of his best friends in real life. If you're telling me, by the way, that they're a bit inspired by, like, the Italians, this scene shows it through. But no, what they did in order to shoot that scene was Lustig and Groni. They were asleep. Like, everybody else was asleep, but Spinell and his assistant, Luke Walter... They're actually the ones who went out. Like They would go out 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and shoot those scenes hmm. in order to capture that because mm -hmm. everybody was, like, so was off asleep and all that shit. So, yeah, they put in a little bit of extra effort and got those shots. But, yeah, I could see that. But that wasn't the case. So what I wrote next was we get the nurses because right? two nurses are coming out of the hospital. Looks like they're waiting on the rides or whatever. They have a little exchange. It's not a big deal. But then the brunette nurse, who was the porn star... <laughs> I mentioned earlier right. in the credits. The guy that picks her up, not that anybody would pay attention, but that's actually other producer I was mentioning earlier. Okay. Andrew Garoni. So he's the one that's in the car. But what we know is that Zito's in the background kind of stalking. Creeping. Right. 
the blonde nurse, she turns on the offer for a ride. She's like, nah. But then she just, she's like waiting around for nothing. <laughs> and then she walks off. And because Zito's around, she does get that creepy vibe that he's following her. And she's right. He follows her all the way down to the subways. And here's something that's really cool. I mentioned earlier that Jurgensen, guy who plays the cop a little bit later on in this mm-hmm. film, he was a real police detective. He said, this is Lustig, said that they had partial permits to shoot down there. He said the only scenes that they were supposed to get was her going down, mm-hmm. putting in the coin into the turnstile, and then coming out, and that's it. They weren't supposed to go any further down into where the actual trains are at, in the bathroom, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But because of the pull that that guy Jurgensen had, he said that Jurgensen happened to be there, right, with them during that scene. Jurgensen talked to whoever was ahead of that part of the transit authority, Mm -hmm. took him out to dinner, and while they were out for dinner, they were around shooting the rest of that scene. (laughs) So they went down, and everything else was guerrilla style. Right. Because if you pay attention, when she's like banging on the subway train, as it's pulling away from her... You can actually see people <laughs> in the shot. But, of course, once it gets back to her, it's blank yeah. again, right? So they were doing a lot of guerrilla shooting during that time. And they said, you know, once she finally goes get into the bathrooms, that bathroom wasn't actually in the transit that they filmed it in. It was, like, in a different place is what I'm getting at, where they shot that sequence. But uh, I thought that was really cool. They, they had some clout because of that guy. <laughs> this scene for me was one of the better sequences in the entire movie. It's really good. The setup for the subway and her just barely missing it, not getting in on time and shit. It felt very real. Yeah, she's panicking. Um, The emptiness didn't feel forced. Mm -mm. It felt like that weird lull that you just run into every now and then, even if you're in a big city where even even if it's only 10 minutes, there's just that weird stretch where there's nothing. Yeah, you're just by yourself in a place where it's normally Even in a crazy place with, you know, super, you know, hundreds of thousands of people living close by. There's that weird little moment. Right, and it's perfect for this time period, too. Mm -hmm. Mind you, because, once again, this was kind of grimy New York. Mm -hmm. Not the version that we get now. So you were taking a chance going on the subways that late at night, too. So, yeah, it would be vacant, just having some weird people hanging out. And it's just the scariness of an actual slasher. You see how it doesn't need to be this supernatural force coming after you. Zito's kind of just an overweight average guy who happens to be crazy and compelled to kill. Yeah. And all it takes is someone being a little bit patient and just listening for where you're at if there's nothing else around. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty wild, but I do enjoy that chase when she gets into the bathroom. Mm Mm-hmm. I give her credit. She pulls off a really good job because that looks authentic. Like she's authentically scared in that moment. Mm-hmm. As anybody would be, I guess, as a female, right? In, in that circumstance. Scared they're going to get caught gorilla filming in that bathroom. <laughs> yeah, no, right? It's like, get this shit over with. But Zito, too, Spinell, does a good job of psyching her out because he doesn't go all the way to the end of the stalls. He turns around. She hears the door close and she's like, she finally can relax a little bit. She goes to wash her face, and when she comes up to look at herself in the mirror, right in the back. All right, this scene inspired another film we've actually reviewed, a French film. It takes place in a bathroom sequence similar to this. I know I'm putting you on the spot. High tension? Yeah. So the sequence where 
the blonde. Oh, right. Okay. Is running away from okay, the killer yeah, yeah. in the bathroom. Aja basically took that from this. Well, and Aja worked on the remake, right? Right. Well, we talked about the guy who is, I know we're off on a little tangent, but it does make sense. So the guy who directed the remake is uh, Kalfun. Mm-hmm. He was the guy, the gas station attendant in that sequence who gets murdered. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So he's the one who actually directed the film. Okay. The remake. But because but they Aja had that connection. produced it. Right. Right. So that's the connection there. Mm-hmm. So it only makes sense that we pay homage. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Aja's a fan. Yeah. I makes mean, sense. there's... Makes sense. Quentin Tarantino's a fan. Yeah. Um, well, of course, Tarantino's a fan. We already talked about Eli Roth in the past, but he's a fan. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who were influenced by this film, or at least enjoyed it. So anyway, I do like that sequence, too, because it, it feels authentic, and it's brutal. Like, you think, and she thinks she's in the clear. <laughs> no, sir, right in the fucking back, and it looks good. It's not bad. All right. The next little thing that we get is when he returns home once again... He's fashioning the mannequin with her hair and her clothes because you can see the nurse outfit on that mannequin. And he starts to talk to himself, is what I put, in the apartment. And right after all that stuff that's playing out, he winds up going to uh, Anna's apartment because right before that, she's developing photos. It just so happens to be the photo that she snapped of Zito in the park. Right, and he's like, yo. Yo, I'm Zito. I'm the guy that you snapped in the park. Kind of a charming guy. Right. So they said the inspiration for that sequence, their relationship, was Ted Bundy. Okay. Right? He's putting on the charm. Okay. Because that's right. He's like, you're like, what the fuck? He goes up there and he's like chatting her up. And what we get out of it is, you know, he's bullshitting her. Tony Clifton. Yeah, (laughs) Tony Clifton. He's like, yeah, you snapped my picture in the park earlier and... She's I like, oh, what a know coincidence. I I'm not a pedo, even though I was about to grab that little girl. It's fucking wild, because what I got out of this is she, like, immediately invites him in. I'm like, wow, that's weird. And they're, they're sitting down, and he's looking at the photos, and he's asking her, he's like, you know, why are there only photos of women on your wall? And she's like, you know, I'll, I like taking photos of women and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, do you ever sell any of these? He's like, I don't think I could. I'd keep these forever. He's like telling her mm-hmm. some shit. There's, this is a telling conversation. Yeah. And she's telling him, he's like, no, you know, as a photographer, I'm trying to sell my photos. And, you know, and so there, there's a little bit of, for him, there's a little bit of a break there. She doesn't realize this. And he uses an example of an old lady on the wall. I mean, it's an old photo of an older lady. And he's talking about this woman had a family. She mm-hmm. was this and that and the other. And so he's kind of giving her an example of what it means to have something in his mind, something that's timeless. Like right. you're capturing that moment and they can never leave you. They can never age. It, mm-hmm. It's perfect. It's ideal. <laughs> Hence his mannequins. <laughs> But he's talking about it generally enough that it sounds like... an artist. Like, I was about to say, he just sounds like an artist, which is immediately what she's latching on to. Right. I mean, he does tell see. her that yeah. he's a... I'm a painter. I do mm-hmm. abstracts and, you know, landscapes and I whatever. also wrote down that he, he obviously believes in death of the author since he doesn't care what she's saying about her own work and is putting his own feelings on it based on what he's perceiving. But... <laughs> right. Now, this is where I'm like, smooth operator because what he says to her is he's like I know a little place in New Jersey clam casino dinner she's like are you asking me on a date he's like well (laughs) she's like I would love to give me like 10 minutes or whatever she's like are you asking me on a date and he's like who are you talking to yeah (laughs) bitch did I just tell you (laughs) 
So anyway, it's like, yeah, she's like, give me X amount of minutes. And then the next sequence we get, they're at that clam casino restaurant and they're having dinner. And he's telling her that she's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen since his mother. And she's like, I got a dip. <laughs> All right. And this is the wild thing, right? Is he's explaining, you know, like, no, my mother passed away in a car accident, yada. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he's like, do you have a photo? And he's like, oh, yeah. He pulls out the photo. I'm like, who the f-? Well, he does. He keeps it right in his breast pocket mm-hmm. <laughs> of his coat. And yeah, and that's what he he's ready. talking about. Her. Yeah. He's like, hell yeah, I got this shit scripted. But you're right. She's like, basically, she's saying that she's got Rita coming over. And yep. they're going to have a photo shoot. So Thursday, you can come over. She's like, are you being jealous because of all these men? He's like, no, that'd be ridiculous. <laughs> so anyway, we know there's going to be a photo shoot. She's got to cut this date a little bit short. No big deal. In the next sequence, he does go over, which I think this is a wild sequence too, this photo shoot. <laughs> it's a complete misdirection from what the first half of this film was like. Because <laughs> it's like, there's gonna be a showdown. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> She's all like, you know, in fashionable gear, taking photos of these ladies. And I'm like, <laughs> I always, when I, when we rewatch this, it's like, I always forget about this scene. But knowing now, like, this is so ridiculous. Right. Oh, my. Especially the first time when it just hits you. The second time, it's a little bit creepier as he's just sitting there, just so intent on what's going on. Mm-hmm. With the, his fucking present. And then at yeah. a certain point later on, like, he starts his rocking and shit. and Moaning. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because you hear a couple of the moans. He does that a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, this is Lustig. He said that it wasn't, I mean, it is, but not, it wasn't written. Let's put it that way. Those noises that Zito makes. He was just. Uh, Spinell actually had, had asthma. You know, he's passed uh, away. But he kept it in because he, he had a hard time breathing a lot. There's a funny fucking story later, but later on, yeah, because of his asthma, he's like, uh, yeah. but yeah, he had asthma and shit. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's a little bit of trivia. That studio where they were doing the photo shoot was leased by this guy named Louis Javits or Javits. He's the actual art director in that studio, you know. He's like, no, 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 this is wrong. This is what needs to happen. And Rita has to take her necklace Mm. off. That guy actually leased out. That's his real studio. He's a real photographer. Oh, shit. And he gave them one day to do that whole sequence. And so they did. But they didn't get it done. So they broke in that night. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, it was Spinell and his assistant. (laughs) But what happens, what this amounts to is Rita... One of the models has to take her necklace off. Is given too much glare. We found out it's her mother's. I, I thought that was interesting that they actually put that in there. Yeah. It happened to be her mother's necklace, right? Not her right. necklace. I was like, mm, I don't think that was non-intentional. I think they did that for a reason. But you're right. Uh, mm. It gave him time to give her the teddy bear. She likes it. She gives him a kiss, and he's kind of like, ah, oh, thank you. Anyway, she's got to get back to shooting. And that art director, he's you know too busy looking at the negatives and all that stuff. Zito swipes the necklace on his way out. All right. A little bit later on, Rita goes back to her apartment. She's running bath water. She, when she comes out, she gets the buzz. It's, it's Zito. He's like, hey, did you forget something when she opens the door? She's like, ah, oh, thanks. As they're having that short exchange, he sabotages her locks. Yeah. Yeah. Like, hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so... She goes back into her apartment. For a second, though, when I saw him fucking with it, mm-hmm. I'm like, there's the asshole that's been sticking gum in the locks every 
Yeah, prick. <laughs> Bunch of savages in this town. Yeah, she goes to make like tea or something like that. Because she goes off into her kitchen. Mm-hmm. I thought she was making coffee, but she winds up with a team up. But she makes a fake sip. I noticed that twice. So I will say <laughs> that this little bit was where I was most checked out in the entire movie. Because I'm like, dude's just killing and killing and killing. Yeah. And, like, the choppers are after him, but we haven't heard from him in like 20 minutes. Like, I, I do have a question. I know we've been talking a lot about films that have borrowed scenes from this and how this film's, you know, influenced mm-hmm. by other stuff. The bathroom scene, I don't know how much that influenced, like, A Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff like that. With mm. her, I mean, none of that stuff plays out, but it just happens to be that's, for slashers specifically, that happens to be a little bit of a trope. Like, having right. a female character in the bathtub. We get it with Rita. It doesn't play out the same way as no. traditional slashers. Anyhow, once she goes in the hallway, Zita comes back in and tackles her ass, <laughs> knocks her out, and she wakes up tied to the bed. I'll say that's where it gets interesting again. Right. I was like, because oh, shit. now he's talking to her like she's mommy. Mm-hmm. So I wish I would have wrote down a little bit more of what everything he actually said. But he kind of made it sound a couple times like he's the one that killed mom. It does sound like that a little bit because she's going out with all these men. She's changed her appearance, but he's still he's got her mm-hmm. and you can't leave. And then, I think I'd believe that a little bit more than the car crash. Car actually, yeah, yeah, I think that was probably just on the spot kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the first time through, I didn't really catch that. Like, I had no reason not to believe car crash. And it was the second time through, I was listening to the dialogue a lot closer. Right, because like, he's bullshitting oh, her. Okay, okay. You know, well done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to do what Right, I mean, even, you. I give the, the actress credit. She doesn't, in one part, you should be a lot more frantic. But then again, we don't know how anybody would react in that moment right. where maybe in her mind i know we're, she hypothetically, sold herself suffering extreme emotion but she yeah. wasn't really doing much right and that's what i'm getting at is like you could read it as it's just <clears throat> what she probably did was just being very stiff but one could read it as in that situation if i remain calm maybe i have a chance of survival that also could have been what she was doing yeah. And that's why she was as calm as she was in that situation. I have no idea. Yeah, I... She that's, seemed like uh, yeah. she was under extreme stress, but she also didn't Please do don't kill anything. me. Yeah. Don't kill me. I'm like, ah... Uh, that's not a very good pitch. <laughs> but she winds up getting it. She winds up getting gut shot, you know, with the knife. And he goes, Mommy! When he takes her scalp, I was like, I actually put that's an awesome shot because when what we get is when he's making the cut, you get the perspective change. Where you've seen it from her, and oh, the yeah. blood's coming down, and it gets that red filter, mm-hmm. and you see his face changing red with the blood. It's like, that's actually a really cool fucking shot. I really like that shot a lot. Yeah. All that happens, he goes back to his apartment. Of course, that's his motif. I think at this time, too, he's carrying the fucking body, right? Because mm-hmm. Or the mannequin. Because uh, his neighbor comes out, Sally, and she's like, oh, is that Christmas decorations, Mr. Zito? And he's like, yes, Sally. Was that then or was that a lot earlier in the movie? I almost want to say it was right now, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. There's an ex- I know there's like a quick that, exchange that does he has. Happen. Yeah. But what this amounts to is when he's back at his apartment, he's actually putting the cigarette out on the mannequin. You see a male head perhaps in the trash can and he's talking down to it. And the, the severed head on the mannequin, I think, represents him as a boy. Right. And he's being mommy in this particular scene because... He's talking about the consequences of not hiding in the closet when I tell you to and, mm-hmm. you know, getting out and misbehaving, whatever. But that's where earlier on in the film where you see the scars, he's putting out the cigarette 
in the chest area of the mm-hmm. mannequin I, that I I'm guessing is I representing him as a kid. I didn't I guess pay attention to that little detail. Yeah, that's where I'm saying the psycho is where sometimes he's talking as his child self, sometimes he's talking as his mother, Mom. sometimes he's talking to his mother as his adult self. Well, it seems like sometimes sometimes he's talking. I mean, he's definitely schizophrenic. As he sometimes he's talking as mother for sure. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's talking to mother, but I think at least one of the times he's talking to the side of himself <laughs> that can kill. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because his like little kid self isn't capable of it, but the adult version of himself, mm-hmm. the now version of him, yeah, yeah, he's having an inner conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with his inner child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying it's deep, man. It's who thunk it from this film, right? Anyway, as that all that stuff's playing out, right? The very next sequence we get is him calling up Anna. So there's been some time passed because we know there's a funeral because of the conversation. Right. When she said that, I was like, oh. And that's one of the things that sort of threw me. I'm like, well, how much time has passed? Because that means the cops really aren't as close on his trail as I thought. Right. And we don't know for sure if he's been killing or if he's been recluse or what's been going on in that Mm -hmm. time period. We don't know. There's a wash somewhat. She agrees, of course, to go out to, I think, a theater or something. He makes a phone call. She's like, yes, I'll be ready She's like, in about 15, give me 10. And he just pulls up and honks the horn. I was like, damn, that's fucking bossy. (laughs) (laughs) But she comes out and they're driving off. And like, so they're having that conversation. She's thanking him for sending roses and going to the funeral and, you know, what have you. And he's asking her if it's okay if he stops by the cemetery. Because around this time of year, he likes to put a wreath on his mother's grave. and He's like, I got the wreath. Yeah. So I'm going to see mom. And she's like, of course. And so they go out there. And he starts to like, at first, it's, you know, it's, it seems innocent enough. He's just going out there paying his respects. But then as he's doing like his prayer and all that stuff, he starts repeating it and repeating it. And he starts getting emotional and shit. She's like, it's okay, Frank. It was a long well, time ago. As soon as he started <laughs> doing the Hail Mary, I'm like, oh, he's about to lose it. Because that fucking, that prayer says mother way too many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's triggering his ass way too much. We already know he venerates his mother as a saint. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, this is not going to go well right now. Because <laughs> no. what, he, what he does is when he's crying and she's like consoling him, that's when he says, Rita new. And she's like, what? <laughs> Rita new. And he starts to strangle her and shit. And she gets away from him. And then that's when that chase ensues. Now, here's, <laughs> here's where something funny is about to happen in real life. Not in the film. <laughs> Not in the film, but in real life. Well, and this is where he finally breaks, because everything from here on out, like, is half hallucination. I like how moody it is, too, in the mm-hmm. cemetery. Yeah. So he's chasing her throughout the cemetery. She, at some point, he loses track of her, and she whacks him with the shovel, and she catches his arm, and he goes down. He's kind of sobbing and shit, and he gets up, and he's like, mother! <laughs> right? He does all that shit, and then he returns back to his mother's grave, and... <laughs> The director, Lustig, once again, said that it basically was a Carrie ripoff, what he did here. He said he brought this whole scene from uh, Carrie, where, you know, the mother comes and grabs him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let me fin- let me finish this story before I get to that little trivia. It's fucking funny. What I pretty much wrote down is this is where Zito, he's emotionally drained. He's been physically beat up. He's, you know, he's mentally drained, all that shit. He's been hurt. We don't know exactly what happened to Caroline's character, Anna, at that point, right? After his little hallucination at his mom's grave once he gets beat up and she runs away from him. He returns back to his apartment 
and he retreats on the bed and he starts to hallucinate that the mannequins mm-hmm. who are the victims throughout the course of this film are starting to come to life right they're at that little table and they start grabbing weapons from that the shit so fucking cool it is so fucking boss <laughs> and they start to go over to him and start to them actually going him. at him have moments of being really cool and also moments a little of bit being silly really silly <laughs> yeah uh, you could tell the women were getting into it having yeah. fun the chopped off head popping up or the stump that when was you know neat. something cool about that hmm. that headless corpse that pops up that was the betsy palmer corpse from friday the 13th oh shit that's yeah. funny because okay. savini yeah at that time prior to filming this he was actually filming Friday the 13th down in New Jersey. Oh, shit. Okay. Right? And so Spinell and I can't remember if it was a grown, it might have been Lustig, drove down to Jersey and talked to Savini, talked about they liked his special effects on Dawn of the Dead, whatnot. He's like, hey, we, you know, we would like for you to help. Anyway, he agreed. He's like, as long as you guys can put me up in New York. Uh, Lustig said at the time that Savini was going through a breakup we talked about mm-hmm. before that he's from Pittsburgh along with Romero and all those guys. Uh, he says, I can't go back to Pittsburgh. I'm going through this really nasty breakup. He says, as long as you guys can put me up in New York, I'll help you. And they did. Oh, man. The Savini thing, it was really fucking funny this week just anyway because I didn't know he was in this movie. And randomly this week, I rewatched uh, Zach and Mary make a porno, oh, nice. and Tom Savini shows up because it's set in Pittsburgh. They go to mm. Monroeville High School. Yep, one of the awesome. Roving Rovers. That's awesome. The hockey team is the Monroeville Zombies. Yeah, and Tom Savini is the guy that rips them off by renting them. <laughs> quote unquote renting them a space <laughs> yeah. which was just a building that was being torn down in like two days <laughs> so funny there you go and I was like oh because I was re-watching it and I was like oh look it's Tom Savini <laughs> I know all this because awesome. it's Monroeville Da-da, that's funny <laughs> and then I put in this movie and I'm like oh shit it's Tom Savini <laughs> what the fuck Tom Savini <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I put that down a little bit like said so that headless corpse coming up but what we get his those corpses, the mannequins, women, are mutilating his ass. They're like tearing at his neck, and they finally mm-hmm. pop his head off. What we get right after that that cut is we get two cops in their squad car. The signs are on. They're racing over to Zito's apartment. They kick in the door. They see him actually not as we saw him last, but they see him. Well, first they see all the mannequins and shit, right. right? That's already kind of creepy. But they see him with a knife lunge into his stomach. So it appears that he committed suicide. And they don't do anything outside of that and then just kind of close the door and leave. They kind of just fuck off. <laughs> right? And then they get the pan, you know, back to Zito's corpse and then his eyes pop open. And then that's it. That's the end. Which, the one other thing, if you wanted to try to say that this is glamorizing him, the fact that his eyes pop open in the end and he's not dead. Yeah. You could say that. Yeah. Yep. So there's arguments to be had throughout. I get why it's controversial. That's all That's all I'm getting. Yeah. At. So, I get why. I just, I don't think it's quite there, but. Yeah. So, you know, 1980, this film, man, so controversial at its time of release, it hugely, in part, not necessarily because of the film itself, is because of that fucking poster and you know yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. So Lustig talked about that. He said that he had no hand. He, Spinell, everybody else involved had no hand in the art direction of the movie poster. This was all done by Analysis Film Corporation. I can't tell you the artist because I don't, I'm not sure who did it. But he said when they revealed it, 
like analysis was like, yeah, we got, we got it. We didn't want you guys to come into our office and check it out. <laughs> he said, uh, Spinell was a little bit peeved because he wanted his face on the poster. I mean, rightfully so it was, oh, it was his yeah. first lead and all that stuff. But you know, what we got instead was the bloody scalp, the erection in the pants, you know, with the guy in the fucking the knife, the belt buckle. I told you not to go out maniac. That's iconic. And right. Lustig talked about that. He's like, you know, that was that was something super bold. It created so much controversy because, granted, a lot of the people that were protesting probably never even seen that film to begin with. They just know what they heard of people coming out of the theater or whatever. So a lot of feminist groups were going out protesting. Like I said, hugely in part because of the poster. A huge example was in L.A. It was hung over like an R&B custom shop or something. Oh, okay. And the women, the women in the shop... Like, this is our life. We had to see this every day. So they painted over it in white, mm. pure white. <laughs> so it was that kind of controversy, man. You know, but sometimes what we talked about is that kind of controversy and word of mouth, it brings out people on droves. Yeah. Perfect example of just box office numbers, $10 million against a $350,000 budget. 48000 of it, they raised themselves. And I mentioned some of the other investments. So pretty impressive. If you think about it, the scene I want to go back to a little bit was in that cemetery sequence. Okay. The actress that plays his mother and like some of the cut scenes and flashbacks and all that stuff. Apparently she was the corpse that came up out of the grave to grab him during his hallucination in the cemetery. Okay. <laughs> what I read was that because Joe Spinell had asthma, he actually had an asthma attack during that chase sequence with Caroline Monroe. And when he went back. Mm-hmm. To film that, he said, thankfully, she had like maggots and shit all over her face and makeup. He said that because he had that panic attack, he wound up throwing up on her when she came and grabbed oh, him out of the grave. Oh, <laughs> he said, but she didn't know. It's because she had all that gunk on her anyway. She didn't oh. realize that he threw up on her. <laughs> that's, uh, I was like, oh, that's grimy. It's so funny, man. It's, it is fucked up. All right, man, I told you, I did a good bit of research. I don't know how much I want to share, but there's a couple of things I thought that was really interesting, right, is the Zito name, the character name in this, uh, it was a nod to director Joseph Zito. He did the film The Prowler, which is actually another slasher film that came out in 1981, but uh, he was close friends with William Lustig and Tom Savini, right? Mm. So that's they paid homage to their friend. One of three collaborations. So prior to this film, the reason, main reason, too, why they got Monroe on this film is that she worked with uh, Spinell on that film Star Crash back in okay. 1978. It was like trying to capitalize on Star Wars. So it was kind of like a really cheap knockoff sci-fi film. But they said that at the time of that film, Monroe was, you can look throughout photos, right? She was a really good looker and you know, in her prime. But in that film, they basically had her in a bikini running around. And Spinell happened to be in that film. And he actually spoke up for her, right? And he's like, hey, whenever she comes off of her scene, I guess the people who uh, are in charge with costume design, it's like, you need to give her a jacket because they were filming like during the winter months. It was cold. It was in England. So she never forgot that. He actually stuck up for her. And so that was the first film they worked on. They worked in Maniac. And then the last film they worked on together was the last horror film wild story about that is because of the success of this film her then husband at the time uh, Judd Hamilton a lot of people thought he was kind of a wizard because of the they're like why would you invest in this film and then you have this huge return you're some kind of genius Mm -hmm. right 
So when they were filming the last horror film, the initial budget for that film was $500,000. They had run into so much trouble because they filmed it in Cannes. They filmed it in Geneva. I think they also filmed some of it in New York City. It wound up costing $2 million. It was pretty much a bomb, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But if we ever get around to that film, there's some really cool shit artistically that Spinell did in that film. But long story short, I thought it was interesting knowing some of the early attachments. I talked about Argento and Nickelodeon and Goblin and all that stuff. But in a weird way, this, you know, had Carolyn Monroe actually, this was like right. like her foray into horror. Mm-hmm. Because shortly after, like I said, she was in several of them. So that was kind of cool. And Boris was actually the name of the dummy that was used in that shotgun sequence. The uh-huh. one I was saying that was used in Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, they said after that sequence, because it was so severely damaged... They locked it actually in that car they used because his car was already fucked. <laughs> and he said they, they drove it into the East River and that shit just sunk. Oh, shit. Yeah. I don't know. You know, if you're somewhere there, maybe you can find it. Oh, here's this is really cool. Joe Spinell, because there's a really cool documentary. His sister, a lady named Grace Ramo, this is how basically how his entire film career got started. So this film, The Godfather, all of that shit, if it wasn't for his sister, we probably wouldn't know him as what we know him today, in part because uh, his sister's sister-in-law's best friend at the time was married to Mario Puzzo, who is the author of the Godfather novels. And his sister wrote a six-page letter to him explaining, because they knew that it was going to get turned into a film. Mm -hmm. So she wrote a six-page letter pretty much vouching for her brother. And I guess Coppola? Yeah. Got wind, and they're like, yeah, bring him down, audition. And he got the part. And Coppola and Scorsese and all these huge fucking directors loved him. (laughs) And William Friedkin, the guy who directed The Exorcist, he wound up directing Ninth Configuration and some other films that Spinell was a part of. And he basically talked himself into parts. And like, we have no part for you. He's like, no, you definitely got a part for you. You need me in your film. And so he actually was talking to these directors basically talking himself into a lot of these films and because of that he had all these cool connections with Pacino because of Cruising De Niro because of all these other films Mm -hmm. so for somebody who you wouldn't think of that you know maybe upon appearances well received he actually gave Sylvester Stallone his big break Stallone was trying out for as like an extra in The Godfather and got turned down for whatever reasons oh yeah and I think a little bit later on, he wrote a uh, screenplay that was actually mildly successful, Stallone that is. Mm-hmm. But he had the script for Rocky, basically, and nobody was giving him the time of day. Like, none of the studios. And he basically encouraged Stallone, he's like, finish your script. He's like, uh, he's like, I'll help you get it pitched. He's like, you know, just put me in your movie, basically what he yeah. said. And <laughs> They formed this really cool relationship. Unfortunately, because of Stallone's stardom and all that shit, he had to cut ties with a lot of his old friends, Spinell having to be one of them. But in that little documentary, his story, everybody that was, whether it was Lustig or these other actors in various films that were talking about him, Jason Miller I'd mentioned earlier, was on that documentary, Caroline Monroe, they all spoke well of him. Uh, He had his habits. Part of his death had to do with the fact that he was a hemophiliac. You know, and later on in his career... Because of his mother, I'll put it this way, it wasn't her fault, but he was like basically attached at the hip to his mother. A lot of the people said that 
he and his mother basically had a relationship like they were married without the romantic part of it. Like they were basically a married couple, right? <laughs> and he actually got his mom involved with some films later on in his career and shit like that. But once she passed, it was like an 87, it, it basically became a downward spiral for him. He got into drugs and alcohol and, you know, wasn't taking care of himself. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, from what I understood, is he had like, a, uh, I think, a slip. He cut the back of his head. Yeah, so... I was just looking up, you know, just basic facts on him and listed reason of death on his Wikipedia's exsanguination. And I'm like, how the fuck did he die from blood loss? And so Vampires. I had to go read it. Yeah. And it was, yeah, he, he slipped in a shower, cut himself pretty badly, but didn't quite realize how badly right. he, he cut himself. Like laid down and yeah, bled out. Sat down death, on the couch. Yeah, made a call to someone to go grab groceries yeah. for him. Yeah, you're right. Like some he milk wasn't or some feeling yeah. good, and when they showed up, he didn't answer the door because he had bled out on the couch. So, all right, as a part of if you own like the DVD version of Maniac when Blue Underground put it out in that Spinell story when they were talking about that Lustig and some of the other guys, um, this guy who wound up doing Combat Shock and some other kind of like 80s weird action kind of underground films. He was the one who was going to direct the sequel to Maniac. He, he was mentioning that during that time period, right, when they were filming Spinell, he was a little bit emotional, you know, a little bit um, taken back by the fact that women were so opposed to this film, Maniac, mm-hmm. you know, because of its portrayal and all that stuff. He said it hurt him a little bit. So when he wrote the character for Maniac 2, he said that the character Robbie was a uh, like a clown character and that kids were sending him letters about their abuse from their parents and foster homes and whatnot. And he was basically a vigilante for these kids. Mm-hmm. And so that was what his vision of what the, the second part was going to be, you know, and trying to maybe clean up a little bit of what people thought of him in, from Maniac. Yeah. But unfortunately, like you were saying is, one of the assistants or one of the guys that helped take care of him noticed that he wasn't answering his door and shit like that. They would show up, you know, ring him up, call, whatever, nothing. And then that's, like you said, they finally got people to do like a welfare check on him. And that's when they found him. But this is what Lustig said. I thought this was kind of fucked up, but it is funny at the same time. Is that for one of the things that Spinell kept from the set of this movie was his severed head toward the end of the film, right? He kept a prop. He said that he kept it in his living room, Spinell, that is, mm-hmm. on his TV set. So one of the first things you see is that fucking head when you walk in. <laughs> he said, uh, Lustig, that is, he's like, if, you know, it wasn't heaven, whatever, if you believe in that stuff. So it wasn't heaven. He said he was probably laughing because when the cops first entered, they saw all the blood because he bled out all over the, the furniture and, and shit. And then they look over and they see his head on that television set. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I get it. It's that's fucked up, but it is kind of funny. funny. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, is I enjoy the fact that we finally get to talk about this, you know, for, for obvious reasons. But I think a, a big bad way because of Spinell, he wound up doing some other films a little bit later on in horror specifically that are pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. But this is definitely one of those like for like Rooker and, and other people. This was like a foundational film for him. Like he did all these small time characters and films, but this one really put him on the map. Sweet. I was just trying to think. I think I've already jawed off quite a bit of what I think of this movie. Overall, I really like it. I'm super glad that we watched it. I understand the controversy, especially from the time period. But 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. Nowadays. I mean, in comparison to films nowadays, that we get it's now, just yeah. like, oh shit, this is awesome because you see where it fits in historically, and yep. fuck, it's just an amazing performance from Spinell. Yeah, um, just gotta a get really him. well done movie overall. <laughs> yeah, um, really well done slasher. That's about the slasher. Yeah, what I think was interesting too is this was Lustig's you know break away from doing pornos, mm-hmm. <laughs> and funny too. not bad because no. this set his career into a different trajectory. So hats off to him too. I will say that this movie has me way like jazzed to maybe finally watch a different movie I've been meaning to get to. And we haven't talked at all about what we're going to do next week yet. But can I throw out a suggestion yeah, right dude, now? Yeah, I'm always up for it. How about some house that Jack built? Oh, yeah, I'd be up for that. That's a good recommendation. <laughs> for whatever reason, this sort of like day in the life of a serial killer has me Man. just way more jazzed to finally get around to watching that. Yeah, I'm totally not opposed. Uh, I own it, so I'd be another <laughs> good reason to watch it. <laughs> Well, shit, I suppose that's what we're doing next okay, week then. Down, so yeah. uh, before I go into my closing spiel, do you have anything else to say about Maniac? Maybe one other little cool bit okay. of information. This involves Spielberg, actually. Okay. So Frank Pesky was a friend of Spinell's. They worked together on some other films. But they were offered a part in Jaws. And the part they were supposed to have was Spinell was supposed to be on the pier, whereas Frank Pesky was supposed to be the one swimming. Mm-hmm. Spinell's was, you know, be the one who's like, hey, you need to get, get away from the shark. Whatever, for whatever reasons. Don't fuck with Bruce. No, they they had to turn down their film because uh, that guy Frank said he was having like some kind of relationship problems where they couldn't go to, um, I think they were shooting in uh, Martha's Vineyard okay. for that film. But what they did was, uh, because they were friends with Spielberg when they were out in Los Angeles, is Spielberg invited them to his study or whatever, to his mm-hmm. office, in his home, because... The film Jaws was being nominated for the Academy Awards, and it had already been nominated for you know Best Film. Spielberg was hoping he would get nominated for Best Director. And Spinell and the other guy, Frank, were like wearing Jaws shirts because mm-hmm. it was being filmed live on TV. So they were in a study, and Spielberg didn't get the nomination right for Best Director. And Spinell and the other guy like were going to bat for Spielberg. They're like, this is a travesty. <laughs> He's like, you know, The Godfather was nominated for all these awards. He's a like, Coppola was nominated for Best Director. He's like, who do you think made Jaws? Some, you know, some dude down the block, your mother? You know? <laughs> He's like, you can't nominate a film without its director. So they went to bat for Spielberg. So I was yeah. like, that's pretty cool. Like, that's cool. He was one of those guys who would, you know, bat for his friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another guy I'd mentioned who was putting on a play in, on Broadway. Uh, I think it was called Marlowe, and it wasn't doing really well, like some of its opening night. And Spinell would go out in, you know, on the street and basically tell people it was the best Broadway performance or whatever musical since Hairspray. <laughs> and so he would go to bat for his buddies. Mm-hmm. You know, he would get That's people cool. involved that normally wouldn't get a break. So he gave a lot of people breaks because... He believed in people. So that's kind of another encouraging thing. Like he believed in himself, but more importantly, he believed in people around him. Oh, yeah. You know, gave a lot of people their breaks. So it's really cool. Sweet. Fuck yeah. It's too bad. Uh, yeah, it's like it's unfortunate when I was like two away, years but, old. But yeah, he left behind a pretty impressive career, though, nonetheless. I agree. Fucking, I'm glad I finally watched this movie, too. Yeah, man. And I'm excited for next week. In order to listen to us next week, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. That'd be super awesome, especially if you could also, like, rate and review. 
if there's any way to do that, however you're listening to us right now, because the world is ran on algorithms, and that just gets us in it better. Pops us up all over the place. Along with that, you can always listen to all of our back catalog and scroll through all that shit at your leisure over at www.friedsquirms.com. While you're there, you can contact us through the website or by emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com. Also at the website, if you click the links up at the top, you'll notice we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network. Uh, you can check out the other shows on the network, me talking about nerdy shit over on General Nerdery, my co-host from that talking about war, war gaming, and war philosophy over on The Art of War Gaming. Yeah. Oh, you can also catch us on Fried Squirms across all the social medias. Yeah. Just search for Fried Squirms where it pops up. Yeah, we're all over the, the social <laughs> networks. Oh, I remember when I was too stoned and almost zoned out. The easiest place to keep track of everything that's happening on the network, especially as we finish and get new things done, will be by hitting up that website, www.earverm.com. That is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. There we go. Yeah, boy. <laughs> But once again, too, we like your suggestions, your recommendations, and once again, if you're an independent filmmaker, you might have a film that needs some eyeballs on them, let us know. Always up for watching those. But that's all I got. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms. Out. Out.